This episode is brought to you by the Arvada Center because they're kicking off their summer concert series in June. Relax under the stars at the Arvada Center's outdoor amphitheater and take in acts like Melissa Etheridge, Big Richard, Tower of Power, Preservation Hall Jazz Band, The Spin Doctors, and so much more. Concerts are scheduled for June through September. You can find a whole schedule of events and get your tickets today at arvadacenter.org. That's arvadacenter.org. Welcome to CityCast Denver. I'm Bree Davies, and you're listening to Mayoral Madness, our effort to get to know all 17 candidates who want to be Denver's next mayor. Today, I'm speaking with Mike Johnston. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Delighted to be on. So, Mike, you've been campaigning all over the city for a while already, and I'm wondering if you could tell me about a new place or something new to you that you love in Denver right now. Oh, the two new things that I've discovered over the last few weeks that I didn't know about. One is um, Baked in Denver, which is a great donut shop on South Broadway I had not been to before. I'm a big donut fan, so that was a real wonder for me. And the second was, I did not know that Ruby Hill in the wintertime, Ruby Hill Park, has a full ski mountain on it, where you essentially have an entire outdoor terrain park. And so I've been back there with my kids a couple times, and that's been wonderful. It just feels so epically Denver to me that right in the middle of the downtown city, you'd actually have a full ski resort, uh, uh, you know, five blocks off of Federal. I love it. Yeah, the rail yard's awesome. It's like, um, also folks can rent, I think through the, I think it's on Thursdays, you can rent a snowboard and gear there if you want to do it, if you don't have it. So I didn't even know that, not know that. So yeah, that's the fun part about this is you learn something wonderful new about Denver every day. That's awesome. Um, so the next question I'm asking every candidate, but for you, it's a little different um, because you served as a state senator and you also ran for U.S. Senate and governor and lost. But now you're running for Denver, for mayor of Denver. So I wonder why is this the right office for you and not just the next office? Sure. Fair question. So I've been out of politics the last about four or five years and have been the, running a foundation here in Denver called Gary Ventures, focusing on a lot of the most difficult problems that the city faces, particularly housing and homelessness, which I've spent most of the last two years of my life on with Proposition 123. And uh, I always think about the next job as not what you want to be, but what it is that you want to change. Uh, and for me, the most important issues facing the city right now are around homelessness and around housing. Um and the more and more time I spent on that working around the state, the more and more time I spent working in Denver, I realized these are actually deeply solvable problems. Like Denver could be the city that figures these out and becomes the first big city to get them right. Um, but that that capacity rests entirely in the next mayor because you know we passed Proposition 123. We'll put resources into Denver's hands up to $50 million a year every year in perpetuity. They'll have regulatory freedom to do it. But you have to have a leader with the vision to do it and who can build broad coalitions and who can be able to build a team and manage a staff of 11,000 people and a $4 billion budget to actually deliver results. And I think getting those two things right uh, puts Denver on a path to be America's best city. And I think getting those two things wrong puts us in a path where uh, I worry about the future and how many folks will want to stay in Denver or come if you can't afford to live here and if it doesn't feel um, safe and vibrant. So that, that was what inspired me to do this. I loved my job, didn't need to return to politics, but felt a real uh, obligation to make sure we get this right over the next decade. I'm going to ask you more about your your housing and homelessness plan in a minute, but I just wonder, it's something you've obviously been, like you said, you've been working directly in being involved with this issue of housing. Why do you think Denver hasn't been able to to solve it or fix it in the last couple of over the, over the last decade. Yeah, I mean, that was that was the last two years of thinking and listening and talking I was trying to do to figure that out. I think it's a combination of 
a couple of things. I think one is we didn't have uh, enough resources. So there was, a, we do need real revenue to do this. And that's why we had to pass Prop 123 to put those in place. And when you try to do it without resources, you have to kind of, you know, duct tape and bailing wire it together. And it doesn't always work as well that way. And so one was resources. The second was, you know, regulatory change. We need the ability to get more housing that is affordable, um, permitted and approved more quickly. Right now, it can take 18 months to two years to get that done. And you know, when you talk to people to build houses, that, you know, that adds $100,000, $150,000 to the cost of a home when you have that kind of delay. And so that's driving up the cost for people, too. Uh, and so I think it's it's those two. And it is a combination of then changing the way we finance affordable housing, which previously we'd finance affordable housing, where a lot of that money goes to investors and goes to developers and the cost of housing goes up and up and up. And we pioneered a new way to do this financing through Proposition 123, where uh, these dollars are coming from Chaffa, uh, which means that no one's there's not an investor getting rich on the back end. There's actually dollars that are saved, and you can save those dollars and pass them on directly to renters in the form of savings. So it's both a new innovation on how we finance, plus more revenue to get the units built that we need, plus regulatory uh, kind of removing the regulatory red tape so we can get more of these affordable units built. We had um, a representative Mabry on last week to talk about rent control. And some folks say that the number one cause of homelessness here is rising rents. And you've talked about this unaffordability. And there's this new bill moving through the state legislature right now that would lift the state ban on rent control. If that bill passes and you're elected as mayor, would you work to implement rent control here in Denver? Yeah, I've, I've looked at this too around the country and have not seen rent control to work in the way that we hoped it would. But what we built in 123, I think, is a better version of the same idea, which is the way the Proposition 123 dollars work is that any unit that is financed through these dollars, and that's maybe 25,000 units we're going to aspire to build, those units are, are, are deed restricted to stay permanently affordable. So what that means is that no one ever has to pay more than 30% of their income to rent. So the example I use is if you were a first-year teacher making $40,000 a year in Denver, 30% of that is $12,000 a year. That's $1,000 a month. Um, so that means if you were in one of these units, you would never have to pay more than $1,000 a month for your rent. And your rent can't go up unless your income goes up. Uh, and so, and that stays that way permanently. It's not 10 years from now the unit sells or 20 years from now the unit sells. Those units are deed restricted permanently. So if someone comes and buys the building, it doesn't matter. That unit can't change. It has to stay affordable. So I think there is a way to do this to get to the same desired outcome, which is protecting people's ability to not get priced out of their homes without, I think, the downsides that we've seen around rent control in terms of um, challenges for the market and people not wanting to build or being able to build. And you're getting wildly divergent rents of someone that lives next door to another person that might have just bought recently and someone that's been there for a long time. But I think the, the sentiment is right. The tool is not exactly the right one that I would use, but I do think we can get to a similar outcome. Interesting. I'm just thinking about folks who maybe couldn't get into one of those units. Like how would we handle it based on just how many people I'm thinking, not just that are unhoused, but folks that are just in places where their rent went up $400 from last year. Like, how would we deal with it on a larger scale? Yeah, and I think there, that is the um, reason why it's important that this applies to a much broader section of people. Sometimes when people say affordable housing with a capital A, they think of someone that is just coming out of being unhoused or is making $25,000 a year. We know people that are struggling with rent in Denver right now are making $90,000 a year. You know, you can have a married couple that are both nurses or, or firefighters in the city and they're only making 90000 And if you have two kids, it's not affordable here. So this has a much broader range of people that are eligible up to, you know, up to ninety or $100,000 a year in income. So I think that's critical to really target that workforce housing as well as the people with highest needs. Um, 
And I think the only limit is just how many of those units we can we can build or we can convert from existing units. And so I want to do it aggressively. Um, and I think the more and more you do that, that also drives down the rent in the other surrounding areas, because right now people charge dramatically high rents because they know they can get away with it because that's what the market will bear. When you have 5, 10, 15, 20, 25,000 units that are staying permanently affordable, suddenly you require the market to be more competitive around dropping those rates. And I think that's the best solution long term. My next question kind of already touches on what we've talked about. But um, you said that you would you have a plan to end homelessness during your first term as mayor. And we've had other leaders make grandiose claims before. And it, it hasn't... To be honest with you, it hasn't happened. So I wonder what what makes your plan different, Mike? I'm so glad you asked. And you know, I'm, I'm talking about um, unsheltered homelessness, which is the, the need for people to have to sleep on the streets. We know there will always be folks who will hit on hard times and have to be uh, looking for housing for short periods of time. What we want to change is the notion that people have to chronically live out on the streets for long periods of time. That, I think, is changeable. And I think it's not not that people haven't tried hard or worked hard before they have dramatically. I think we've learned much more over the last five years about what works and what doesn't. And I think there are three parts of it that are the real breakthrough about what works. And I've seen these in other cities I've visited, like Houston and San Antonio and Austin. Um, the three big things are, one, which seems obvious, is we need to get people into housing and into housing that we can build quickly and affordably. And so I think where we've gotten stuck in the past is folks say, great, let's build every person who's unhoused a single family home. Well, that requires $500,000 in three and a half years to get done. And so we can't do that. Um, the other one is, well, let's just let folks stay in, in tents. And I think that's not dignified or stable or fair. Um, and so what I propose, the middle ground is this idea of micro communities, which are you know, half acre lots that could include 40 to 60 tiny homes. Tiny homes are both dignified and stable. They have roofs and doors and locks and it's your own private space. It's got a bed, it's got a desk, it's got a table, it has heat. Um, uh, but also they can cost about $25,000 a unit to build and you can build them very quickly, like in a week. Um, so we can help get people out of the freezing cold now, not wait three years to do it. Uh, so that's step one. Step two is then you put in real wraparound supportive services in those communities. So people now have the support to get mental health support or addiction treatment or workforce training or long-term housing support. And it's much easier to provide those services. So we staff each of those sites with around the, you know, with staff. And then the third, which I think we've missed in the past is I, I think we haven't adequately respected the sense of community that exists among people who are unhoused. Um, and so if you go to 12 people who are living together in an encampment or on a block together, that sense of community is powerful. That's often the only family or community they have left. And so if you build that one unit at a time, you probably couldn't build anyway if you did, and then came to them and said, okay, we have a unit for one of you and it's 10 miles away, people are not likely to move. You wanna preserve that sense of community by saying, when you open a micro community with 40 to 60 homes, you can now go to two or three encampments and say, we can move this whole community together to another community that's going to be safe and stable and dignified. And those three things together are both financially possible, they fit the needs of folks who are unhoused, um, and they also can be done more quickly and more safely. Uh, and you can provide some diversity, right? So if someone wants a, a micro community that is just focusing on women, uh, or one that's just focused on people with children, or one that's just focused on um, people with service pets or people in the LGBTQ community, you could have different sense of identities or important um, uh, communities that people wanted to choose into that give them the dignity of that kind of choice instead of just saying we're throwing you into a shelter with 100 people without any shared con uh, commitment or community. It sounds wonderful in theory. I love the tiny home village model. We have it here. It's worked. But you're also talking about folks that are currently existing in encampments and we can't do this overnight. What is your stance on the urban camping ban? 
Yeah, I'm so glad you've asked this because I, I think this doesn't come across well in 30 seconds down bites or in like, please stand for yes or stand for no. Um, my policy on the camping ban is I do not think it has worked effectively. And the reason why it hasn't worked effectively is because we haven't had housing to move people to, you know. And so if you want someone to move, that is a fair question unless you know where you're going to move them to. And so for me, the opportunity is we have an obligation to provide this housing so we have places to move people to. And our experience has been when you have that option, people are excited to take it. Um, and so what my real focus is on building the housing stock and kind of the housing first approach to get people off of the streets into housing with support. The reason why when people ask me to stand up or down when I when they say, would you enforce the camping ban? I've said yes, because there, there are some situations where I think anyone would agree you may have to do that. If you have health and safety violations, if there is a real health risk, if there is someone with uh, dangerous materials that are either chemicals or drugs or others, there are certain situations where we are not going to be able to see as may or every possible scenario. But there may be places where someone is um, is either breaking the law or doing something unsafe or unhealthy, and you would still have to be able to to um, enforce the ban in that case. Uh, so that's the, but I think of it as a sequence of how do you try and get the access to that housing first? And then uh, if there are areas of public health risk, you'd still have the capacity to, uh, to enforce the, the camping ban when needed, but that that is not, nor it should be the primary strategy. So do you think if you were able to get all those things in line over your first term in terms of getting housing built and creating these communities, would you then see a need for the camping ban? Would you repeal it at, at any point? I mean, I'd love to be at that scenario where we thought we didn't need it and it wasn't present. I mean, this also links to, as we, as we talk more broadly about my public safety plan, you know, we also realize right now there are a whole number of folks putting being put into prison or into jail whose primary needs are addiction services or mental health treatment. And so I, I've proposed closing two pods of the county jail and instead opening them one as a long-term mental health facility, which doesn't really exist anymore in Denver, and one as addiction treatment services. So for those people that have those needs, they can obviously... We have a whole bunch of community-based providers that they can choose into to be able to get access to those services. But if they were facing criminal charges on something, but we know their real primary need is addiction or mental health support, we actually have a place that we could we could send people that would give them the chance to actually get well, get healthy, and transition back into the community. Um, and I think that's a much more optimistic model than where we are. So uh, I'm opt I'm hopeful that we could get to a stage where we've we've been the first big city in America to solve this, and the people who thought I was crazy uh, will say, "Well, it turns out we could figure this out." Um, but uh, yeah, and if that if that's the case, I'm fully happy to relook at it. Um, I think the current plan is how do we get from where we are to where we want to go. Switching gears, we're going to look at something that's in the news right now. Um, DIA recently announced that it is looking for feedback on an infrastructure plan that could include widening Pena Boulevard. What is your stance on widening that road? I'd have to read more about it. I mean, I've driven it a lot of times, and so I've both been on it when it has traffic on it and on it when it doesn't. I think the issue that uh, gets raised is when that was first built, it was thought to be just a road to the airport. Um, now it's also the commute home for people who live in Green Valley Ranch or Montbello. Uh, and so it has a whole set of needs that are general traffic based, not just airport traffic based. And so uh, I, I think that that's the that, that's probably the reason it's being raised. I, in general, am trying to look for as many alternatives as we can to putting more cars on the road and more vehicle miles traveled on the road. And so what that means, love to expand, you know, getting people to use public transit more, including the A-line to the airport or A-line stops on the way out to and from. That's why things like housing are themselves a climate strategy, because if we get good housing built next to transit-oriented development like the light rail, people don't need cars and then can be able to use public transit to get to and from work. Uh, I would, you know, I'm open to looking at it. I haven't read all the research on the volume yet and the needs, but I, I'm in general, my first instinct is to say, can we try to find a way to reduce 
vehicle traffic by making it more convenient for people to use other forms of transit, whether it's rideshare or whether it's buses or whether it's light rail. So I know education is a big part of your background, and you've been an educator in Denver Public Schools. Um, Right now, the district is struggling with declining enrollment, pandemic-related learning concerns, and a school board that has been in the news quite a bit, especially around Superintendent Marrero's uh, failed proposal to close 10 neighborhood schools back in December. As mayor, what would you do to help DPS? Yeah. Uh, and by the way, it's funny that you say that. You mentioned that I was on the uh, school board. I, I was not on the school board, but there was another person named Mike Johnson uh, without no! a T who was on the school board. Yeah. Shut and the funny up! thing is, yes, I will just say, Bree, without, dis- without disclosing any names, there have been times before where there have been controversial school board votes. And I'll get a text from one school board member saying, hey, what do you think about this? And I'm, I'll have to text back and say, wrong Mike Johnston. That, 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 oh, my God, that is not- Mike. <laughs> I'm so sorry that about that. I, no, no. I am one of those people that got you confused. So it's very easy. It's very easy to confuse. So, yeah, I, you know, I started my career as a teacher and a school principal. I was the principal of three different high schools around the metro area in Denver. And so I spent a lot of time in and around education. And I think there are. Kind of, there are some things absolutely that the next mayor can do to help support DPS and two big ones that I would do. The first is we know one of the big inequalities that's growing around uh, our kids in Denver is not just the schooling they get from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m., but it's all the access to learning they get outside of that 8 to 3 school day. So right now, almost 70% of kids' learning time is spent outside of the school day. That's nights. That's weekends. That's uh, summertime. And those are only accessible if you can pay for them. And so whether it's a competitive soccer league or whether it is a uh, arts camp or a science camp or the zoo camp, um, those are not available to kids at all income levels. And so uh, I would want to expand a program we piloted uh, to be able to provide funding for uh, kids on free and reduced lunch to be able to get access to those kind of enrichment programs after school in the summertime in partnership with DPS. That'd be partnership one. The other dual crisis you mentioned after COVID is both academic learning loss, so kids could also get tutoring to this first program. And the second is mental health, like a real mental health crisis for young people, particularly for adolescents in, in Denver. And um, I would want to expand our partnership through Denver Health to provide more school-based health clinics that um, would provide more counselors and mental health support in schools, particularly in high schools where the demand is off the charts. We don't have enough counselors to provide that support. So I think that helps build the kind of collaborative partnership you want to have um, with the school district. And on the third one, uh, yeah, I do think that we want to have a school board that's going to be fully committed to actually providing support to principals and teachers to do the jobs they're trying to do and not being massive distractions around uh, those issues. And, you know, they have to be role model for kids. Being a role model for kids means you shouldn't need to have a mediator or an adult supervisor to oversee a school board meeting because you can't get along together without fighting. That's not a way, I think, to lead any organization, but certainly one that has 90,000 children in it watching you to see how you lead. So I think the mayor has to be a more forceful voice to say, here's what we expect from the city and here's what we expect from the school district and here's how we intend to help you and here's how we intend to jointly hold you accountable along with the voters. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you for answering that question, even though I set you up so wrong. No, totally (laughs) fine. So um, I have a question from one of our listeners. Uh, Jessica W. writes, quote, the shortage of police officers combined with continued population growth is leading to increased violent crime in the city. How do you plan to address police recruiting and or reform as the city's leader? Great question, Jessica. Um, So two parts. One is I do think we need more. I call them first responders. Uh, So I'd say I've said we need 200 more first responders on the street. And I use that term because it does include police officers. We do need more police officers. 
But it also, you need the right person to respond to the right incident. And so if there is a person in mental health crisis on the 16th Street Mall, we want to send a mental health worker to respond to that crisis, not a police officer. Um, if there is a person that is in a potential overdose situation, you want to send a paramedic or an EMT to that, not a police officer. Um, so I think we want to add 200 more first responders that include, yes, police officers and mental health workers and uh, EMTs. And on the officer front, we do need to recruit significantly more. I also, by the way, within that would also add a uh, auto theft unit. We don't currently have an auto theft unit in this city, even though we are unfortunately the worst city in America for auto theft right now. Um, and so uh, that's something that ought to be created to be able to make sure those can be investigated and prevented. Uh, but when I talk, and you've talked about the, the key of how we reform the department too, because that's also critical. And one of the ways is I think I want to hire a police chief who's going to be able to build a vision that is around how we do really authentically community-based policing, which means you are not in a squad car with a 65 apparatus military vest on. Um, you're out walking the beats, talking to neighbors, talking to homeowners, talking to businesses, giving them your card, asking questions. You're visible in highly important ways. I mean, most people will say they don't ever see officers in their neighborhoods anymore, um, and they'd like to have a relationship with them, not feel like they're being policed, I feel like they're being protected and then that requires a relationship and you got to work to build those kind of relationships. And I think that's something uh, I would lead as mayor is to make sure we both have those first responders out there and they're out present, visible, building relationships so that everyone knows who their neighborhood officer is and has a card they can use to reach out if they have a question. So I've got a few questions that uh, we've compiled a list. We're pulling a couple from each for each candidate. So um, we've had the same mayor, Michael Hancock, for 12 years. And while many people are ready for change, many others have reelected him twice. So from your perspective, what's something that Mayor Hancock got really right? And what's one thing that Mayor Hancock got really wrong? I, mean, I think Mayor Hancock did a wonderful job helping lift Denver into being a world-class city. I mean, if you think back 12 years ago, we were coming out of a recession. Denver was struggling. There were challenges. I think one of the things he's gotten really right is the Aerotropolis and the airport. I know the airport's under reconstruction right now, but that is, you know, it's now the third busiest airport in the world right here in Denver. And that's a huge driver for uh, for business, for tourism, for a lot of our economy, and just for convenience. People love to be able to go home and see family, easy on a direct flight. Um I think that's been a great uh, focus. I think he's had a really um, powerful focus on on DEI over the last over his last term and equity and how important of a lens equity is across the city. I think that's been a very powerful focus at the right time. So I think those are those would be two off the top of my head that I think he he's done a really good job on. For me, I think the things that haven't gone as well are the recovery post COVID on these issues of both supporting people who are unhoused. And I think on crime um, and, and affordable housing. Those are the three that I think there's been progress, um, but we have to do a lot more. Um, and I think it requires a lot of coordination. But for me, the two biggest ones I want to see us change course on are going to be how we approach folks who are unhoused and how we approach uh, affordable housing, which, again, I think hasn't been. I mentioned some of the challenges in affordable housing have been. Do you have the resources to do that? Prop 123 changed that. Um, I think those are the two that they've made a valiant effort at. But I think we haven't we haven't succeeded at yet. So. Being mayor comes with special privileges, and I think you could probably call up anyone in the city and get to know them over lunch. Which local celebrity would you want to break bread with? Like Neil and Doug, John Elway, Adele Arakawa, Frank Azar? Oh, <laughs> Who's wow. On your Good list? question. Well, there's some that are kind of Colorado celebrities. Um, so Michaela Schifrin is sort of, I'm a huge Michaela Schifrin fan, who's the ski racer, now the greatest female ski racer in world history. Uh, I think she's she's wonderful. Um, I am definitely a Nicola Jokic fan. I would love to have uh, lunch with the uh, with Nicola. I think that would be a fascinating conversation. Those two are fun ones. I'm also um, 
Uh, I'm also an, an, an art fan. And so I don't know if you know Jordan Castile, but she, I actually know Jordan, oh, yeah. but, um, but uh, I got to know her maybe 10 years ago. She's a little hard to get a hold of now. And she's been amazingly successful, but I, I was going to say she was up at the dam. She's big. She's she big. Is, she is big. But I just think, um, yeah, I think she's an amazing, for the folks that don't know her, she's an amazing visual artist, grew up in Denver, now is one of the, I think, most promising artists of her generation, had her own show at the Denver Art Museum. And so I would put that as kind of an artist and, and, and two athletes probably on my, on my uh, wish list. So are you watching the Nuggets? Is that what you're telling me? Uh, you I, I am a Nuggets fan, although I'm not watching as much of it as I should at this stage because life is a little too crazy. But I am, oh, true. Uh, uh, I am, I'm a big fan. Well, I would, I would urge you to check in because they're number one in the West right now. They're doing amazing. Oh, I know. So I'm definitely keeping track of that. <laughs> um, so last question. Part of the reason we're inviting all 17 candidates for interviews is because we really want to hear a fresh vision for the future of Denver. What is your vision for Denver? I'm so glad. Uh, so my vision is like, there is a moment now where we have a path for us to build Denver as America's best city. Um, and here's what that would look like for me, which is imagine a Denver where five years from now, uh, it is both a place where you have amazing um, restaurants, bars, cultural activities, sporting events, art shows, all on your block. It's the best place to both start a business or be able to find a job or get trained for a job. You're close to the mountains and great outdoor recreation. You can take easy public transit to and from wherever you're going on bikes. You have a lot of walkable neighborhoods. Um, and those things are all true. And you also have the feeling that when you can take your kids downtown to the 16th Street Mall and you can sit on a patio and have a beer with your friends and let them run around and not have to check in them every five minutes because you actually are quite comfortable they're going to be safe in any neighborhood in the city. Uh, you could also have a place where your friend who is a teacher or a server and has two kids can actually say, yeah, I still can afford to live in Denver. I live in the city of Denver. I raise my kids here. I serve the city and I live here. And you could be the place where when you go to bed at night after the amazing night of dinner or a show or theater or uh, improv group, you go home to your own bed and know that everyone in the city also has a bed to go home to, like, um, that there is no one that sleeps on the streets in our city. That for me is the big vision of what's possible. And I think if we do that well, uh, this will be hands down America's best place to live and a place where America's best people can still afford to live. Mike, where can people go to learn more about you and your campaign? You bet. Uh, our website is MikeJohnstonForMayor.com and you can see all of our policy proposals. We just came out with a proposal this past week on equity alone. How do we think about just the issue of equity across the city in every neighborhood? I think that's one that too often gets overlooked. But you can see all of our proposals. They come complete with full budgets, how much everything costs, how we pay for it, where they come from. Uh, and so check them out. And you can always follow me on uh, uh, Twitter at Mike Johnson CO or Facebook and um, and, uh, and Instagram. And But mostly come to our website, MikeJohnsonForMayor.com. I'd love to have you learn more and send us any thoughts you have. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. No, it was so great to have you to be here. And I appreciate you, you taking the time. I so enjoyed it. I look forward to doing it, doing it again. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for rolling with my Miss Googling of your career. Oh, my gosh. No worries at all. It happens a lot. <laughs> Even worse than that, by the way, Bree, is I also have a um, neighbor like three blocks away from me, also no. named Mike Johnson. Yes. And no. so like, we always get our packages confused. So when you have a name <laughs> as boring as mine, this is a real problem. <laughs> That's so funny. I have a similar problem. My address is the exact same as someone's like five blocks away. It's just south. And we get constantly just nonstop <laughs> each other's mail and delivery. So I get That's it. Great. I get it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Mike. This was you great. Bet. Great to see you. I really appreciate it. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Mayoral Madness, what we hope is a 17-part interview series with all the candidates on the ballot to be Denver's next mayor. We're planning to publish these interviews each week leading up to Election Day on April 4th, and we'll be providing more news and analysis during the week. Subscribe to CityCast Denver and learn more about Mayoral Madness at denver.citycast.fm. We'll be back soon with even more mayoral candidates who want to lead the city.